right, everybody, it's that time to dig in to the Word of God, the Word of God that is sent from heaven, God-breathed words to bless our lives. Let's ask the Lord to help us understand and put into practice these beautiful words. Father God, now as we check out this stinging rebuke of those Pharisees, God, uh, what's so helpful to us is what's wrong in them is also wrong in us because we have a fallen nature. And so, Father, help us not to think of this as just as a correction to them, but as an admonishment to us as well. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So it is the final showdown here, Passion Week, here in Matthew 22, now turning into Matthew 23, this ruthless uh, exchange back and forth with the religious leaders and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now this time, the Lord is going to do all the talking sparks have been flying uh, here in a public forum here, a packed house, capacity crowds here because it, it's Passover holiday and thousands upon thousands have descended upon Jerusalem there in the temple where these exchanges are happening. It's Tuesday of Passion Week, so we're just 72 hours out from the cross. The clock is ticking and tempers are flaring. And the Lord Jesus just keeps outsmarting his opponents. So last time we finished up Matthew chapter 22, you'll recall that the Pharisees and the other members of the Jewish high court called the Sanhedrin had joined forces together to try to uh, trip Jesus up in his words, like that's going to happen, and asking all kinds of trick questions uh, there in front of these, this massive crowd trying to get him into trouble with the Jewish crowds and with the Roman authorities. Rome occupied Israel, as you'll recall. Uh, but to the delight and the astonishment of those crowds, Jesus has no trouble disarming the loaded questions, and he stuns the crowds with mind-bending answers. And then he turns the tables on them and leaves his opponents speechless and humiliated, you know just like we like to see the bad guys end up. And so Jesus is outwitted, outlasted, and overcome these crazy, corrupt religious leaders who want Jesus dead. And uh, yeah, so the, the Lord is done taking their questions and playing their games. His eyes are flashing, and he's reached a boiling point here in the new chapter, chapter 23, as we're about to see, uh, he's got something to say, and it's not pretty. And he will take this opportunity to end his public ministry with this holy tirade against uh, hypocrisy and re religiosity and uh, false teachers. So that's how he's going out. The rest of his time after this chapter, he will be talking directly with his disciples, and that's only Wednesday and Thursday. Thursday night is the Last Supper. The next time these crowds are going to see him, it's Good Friday, when he stands before Pontius Pilate. And so it's a chapter-long stinging rebuke. We'll only get from verses 1 to 12, as now Jesus is going to expose 
these long-robed fakers uh, for who and what they really are and why so that they might see it and turn from it and be saved. That's the heart of God. Matthew 23, 1 through 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the Old Testament, the Bible, the law, and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them in that regard that they teach what Moses taught. And do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they don't practice what they preach. They tie up heavy burdens and loads and put them on men's shoulders. But they themselves aren't willing to lift a pinky to be of some help. Verse 5. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries, their little boxes on their foreheads with the scriptures in them, wide, and their tassels on their garments, long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplace. Oh, Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi. Verse 8. But you are not to be called Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi. (laughs) For you have only one master of what rabbi means. And you are all brothers. And don't call anybody on earth father. For you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher. For you have one teacher, the Christ, me. The greatest among you will be your slave, your servant. For whoever exalts himself, spiritual law number one, you will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is an interesting paragraph because it causes a little bit of confusion, but we're going to get that all cleared up today as we uh, get started here. So, yeah, plenty to think about in 12 verses, you see, and it kind of, this, as I called it, a holy tirade uh, of the most beautiful kind. Uh, You know, it lasts almost 40 verses, and so it divides quite nicely, and it's and the topics are brought to you by the letter W uh, because there's a warning and some woes and then some weeping involved. But for our purposes this morning, let's handle the warning part, verses 1 through 12, and we'll start out with the opening paragraph here. And so, yes, indeed, a warning to guard against these religious fakers, he's not going to leave the scene because he's a good shepherd and he cares about those people, the ones who are following. So he turns his attention to his disciples and then he scans the crowds and he says, don't you think for a second that these guys are the real deal or that this kind of religion is what pleases God? He doesn't want to go to the cross without making it perfectly clear. Watch out for these hypocrites. And so what makes these words of Jesus, um, and and we've only just begun with 12 verses, uh, so riveting and relevant uh, is that some of the behavior the Son of God is denouncing, as no doubt you've noticed, isn't just a problem for Pharisees, is it? It's a problem for me. It's a problem for you. This kind of me monster mentality, a propensity for 
self-exaltation and narcissistic streak is in every fallen human heart. It's part and parcel of the human condition, the, the fallen human condition. I love Jeremiah 17.9 because it explains a lot to me about my own heart. It says, the heart, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really can understand how bad it truly is? I love another translation that says, the heart is hopelessly dark and dreadfully deceitful, a puzzle that no man can figure out. Well, no man can figure it out, including ourselves, uh, but God can. God can, and he does. And he's the only one who can, A, make us aware of these attitudes, and, and B, give us the power to overcome and take appropriate action. These men that he's up against here, who he's outing, represent uh, the worst among humans, the worst of human vice. And it's all the more disgusting because it's disguised with the veneer of pious religiosity. In other words, uh, they speak and act in spiritual ways. They want people to think of them more spiritual than they really are. And uh, one writer said, in every beating sinful heart, there lives a little self-absorbed Pharisee <laughs> wanting to strut his stuff to be the center of attention and to seek the praise of men, usurping it from where it really belongs with God and God alone. And so as we get started here, it's good and comforting to remember, my friends, that the Lord Jesus reserves his strongest language and fiercest denunciations exclusively to false teachers, men who misrepresent God, evil and deceitful workers, as he calls them, masquerading as good shepherds, but in reality they're leading people astray and doing it all in the name of the Lord. He goes after them. But happily, I want you to be reminded that our Jesus is more famously known as a friend of everyday sinners, the rip-off artists, tax collectors, the sexually immoral prostitutes and those who use them. To those under demonic oppression, he's always warm and welcoming. If a woman gets caught in the act of, the, uh, of adultery, and, where do they, and what does he say? They want her to be killed. They want him to give the word, kill her. And he says, woman, where are all your accusers? I took care of them, didn't I? And neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. The part that the progressives always leave out of the story. Uh, yeah, there was repentance there. And so, yeah, uh, but to religious opponents who have three and a half years seen the miracles, heard the audible voice of God, the Son, and still chose to refuse to believe and humble their hearts, yet to them, the thunderbolts come. But to us, of a sincere heart, broken as we are, as sinful as we are, he speaks kindly and he says, come to me. 
Don't be afraid. I'm gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest with me. So he says here to friendlier faces, he turns to Peter, James, and John in the crowd, and he identifies the culprits. We're into verse 1. He calls uh, them the religious authorities, really, who occupy the seat of Moses. These are the men in charge, spiritually speaking. Teachers of the law uh, can be translated scribes, as King James has it. Uh, The scribes were the copyists, and they were the they were the interpreters of the Bible and his word. And um, they, as scholars and professors, with, along with these Pharisees, uh, they were the, uh, on the front line. So they were the most visible, most vocal, the most interactive with the public uh, than the rest of the Sanhedrin. And they sit in Moses' seat. See, more, more precisely, and a really good little point, that in the Greek it says they have seated themselves in Moses' seat. And Jesus, just a little shout out that these, what you see before you, everybody, is not God-called men. This isn't God's idea. Their version of religion, not, not biblical. They called themselves. So back in those times, it was a huge, ginormous honor to be a rabbi. So they took that honor for themselves. And they called themselves. And they scratched and clawed to get to be in Moses' seat. Now, Moses' seat, what did that mean? Moses' seat, D.A. Carson, synagogues had a stone seat at the front where the authoritative teacher sat and taught. It was uh, as if you would say, and another commentator, the Jews spoke of the teacher's seat the way we speak of a pastor's pulpit. So Moses' seat was really signified the place where the shepherd, the pastor was because Moses was considered and called a shepherd of God's people who brought the word. So it's a continuation there in the same spirit and tone of Moses sits the pastor doing what Moses did. And the grammar lets you know that when Jesus says, oh, whatever they say, do, it's pointing back in a limit limited sense that as these in Moses' seat teach what Moses taught, then you are to do everything that they say because they had some crazy teachings, uh, pharisaical nonsense that Jesus exposes and he didn't want them to follow that. But he says, listen, Apply the truths of the Bible they teach, but for heaven's sake, don't imitate their lives uh, because they don't practice what they preach. Now, we know how that goes. And like so many people, not just religious circles struggle with this. Um, It's easy to know truth, but not live it. I mean, how many of you know a little physical exercise every day would be good for you? How How many people know that? How many people would tell somebody that? Yeah. Okay, you know what the next question is, right? All right, number two. How many people know that, you know, we shouldn't spend more than we make? There was a collective groan there. All right, so how many of you would, would suggest that to somebody? You know, you shouldn't spend more than you make, right? How many of you might even get on a high horse about it? Well, if you didn't spend more than you make, and there you are at home goods, ladies. <laughs> Just slide in that card. Oh, we need a new ficus tree. Oh. 
I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not honest before I'm, I'm saying it just came into my mind. I, I, oh, Lord, help me. How many people know this? Let's just go with this. Uh, when you get down to an eighth of a tank, you should stop and fill it up. How many people know that? Hmm. How many people know you should drive the speed limit when you see the CHP? <laughs> what? We know stuff. We tell other stuff. We get on our soapboxes about the stuff, but we give ourselves a pass, and that's the problem. And when you do that, when you're on the soapbox and you intentionally have no desire to do it whatsoever, then, my friend, it's time to be called a hypocrite. That's what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite is not a weak Christian who's struggling to do what he knows he should do and that he tells other people. No, that's called the Christian life. Two steps forward, three steps back. I'm trying, I'm struggling, I'm confessing, I'm repenting. It's endless, right? The hypocrite is the pretender. There's no tears, there's no striving, there's no praying, there's no desire to even do it in the first place. It's all a show. There's a world of difference between a pretender and somebody who is just struggling to be what nobody can ever possibly 100% be in this life. A pastor I like to listen to <clears throat> preaches, he has a church in Singapore, and uh, I listened to him on this passage, and he said, uh, somebody asked him, Pastor, what's the hardest thing about preaching the gospel? And he said, well, it's not studying, though uh, studying can be time-consuming and taxing. And then he said, it's not preparing messages. He said, though, the, there's a level of difficulty there. And it's not the pressure to speak uh, publicly, though that's an enormous pressure and intimidating to, to have to be on the platform and have everybody staring at you and all of that, waiting for you to say something profound. Uh, he said, no, no, none of that is the hardest. What's the hardest part of preaching the gospel is living out the truth that I tell others in my own heart and life. Oh, it's super easy to tell somebody, count it all joy when you fall into troubles, and then you fall into troubles. And you're like, whoa, and the Holy Spirit's like, what did you just tell the congregation? You know, or, or, or you know, we gotta do everything without complaining. Philippians 2.14. And then you get into a situation and you're like, oh, I know, you know? Oh, it's easy to tell others, envy, the Bible says, Proverbs 14.30, uh, will rot your bones. And then you're on social media and you're watching everybody take fantastic trips to Italy and, you know, go off to Hawaii for a month or two and retire with their five houses and all of that. And you're like, Proverbs 14.30. <laughs> How about telling people, you know what Jesus said, we should love our enemies. And then our enemies manifest. And then you're reminded, oh my word, I just told everybody, I told hundreds of people to love their enemies and forgive those who hurt you. And then you get hurt. 
And it's in those moments when nobody's looking in the privacy of your own heart that you determine whether you are a sincere believer or a religious hypocrite. Romans 2, Paul's talking to Jewish Christians who aren't doing a good job. And it says, well then, if you teach others, why aren't you guys teaching yourself? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it's wrong to commit adultery, but is your heart filled with lust? Oh my goodness, you condemn idolatry, but you have little idols of your own. So 1 John 2 and verse 6 will clear this up once for all. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Done. And how do we do that? Well, we follow Jesus' words to daily, number one, deny yourself. That those sinful self-serving prompts, deny that. Get used to that. Number two, pick up your cross. Die to the things that stop you from being who God designed you to be. And then follow hard in a tight relationship with the Christ that we claim to know and love. And by the power of the Holy Spirit and nothing else, not by might, not by your power, but by his spirit, says the Lord, then and only then will we start to be able to reflect some of his goodness and let our walk match our talk. And so these guys have chosen uh, to wear masks because it's easier to pretend than to be. And so they're not much help. So before we move on, just that last thought of, of re- religious people from Jesus' point of view, Christians, ought to be lifting burdens and alleviating suffering, not adding to people's burdens as uh, as is often the case. Uh, So he says, listen, they stack up burdens, and how did they do that? Well, you guys know. They're most famous for being legalists and creating a world of rules and regulations that are nonsense that they put in place that said, if you want to please God, then here's a thousand rules to do, especially on the Sabbath. Now the Sabbath was God's Old Testament command number four, I think it is, where he says, here's a gift. You guys have a father in heaven. You're not like the other nations. So it's work, 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 work. You know, uh, harvest, 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 plant, 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 24-7. It's all about you and your effort. No, you have a father. So why don't you just take a break, enjoy your family, rest. Don't go to work as usual open up a scroll, reflect on the goodness of God, and take a break. Don't work. And the Pharisee said, let us tell you all what he meant when he said, thou shalt not do any work. (laughs) Oh my goodness. So they came up with crazy things. And so when you woke up on a Saturday, and it was the Lord's day, to take a break, you would just as soon pull the covers over your head and go back to sleep and pray for the next day to dawn because it was so complicated and so confusing and so guilt-ridden because nobody could keep them. 
So they would say, you can't bathe on the Sabbath. Why? Because the soapy water might spill on the floor and you find yourself inadvertently washing the floor and that would be work, you Sabbath breaker. So everybody had to go around without bathing. It was so bad. You couldn't drag a chair on the ground because it would create a furrow and that would be doing farm work. Oh my, I know, but they believed it. Uh, You remember when the Pharisees were uh, dogging the disciples in the grain field and they saw them, they're hungry. They take some of the grain and they go like this and then they, you know, blow off the husks and eat it. And they said, teacher, teacher, they're violating the Sabbath. How can we have these Sabbath breakers among you? And he's like, what are you talking about? They're threshing and they're winnowing. They're doing farm work. And Jesus said, go away. They're hungry. Go away. Go away. They're hungry. They can eat. It's okay. Oh, my goodness. That's how they are. Leon Morris, just a paragraph. They considered it work to tie a knot, to sew two stitches, to sew two seeds, to pluck a blade of grass, to pick a piece of fruit. You broke the Sabbath if you wrote more than two letters of the alphabet, climbed a tree, or clapped your hands, unless you were applauding one of them. And and don't even think of carrying anything that weighed more than two dried figs. Where did they come up with that? And this is the problem. When Jesus healed in John chapter 5 and said, get up. I know you've been crippled for 38 years. Get up and pick up the mat, carry it, and get out of here. Go home. So the Pharisees, when they see him, they know him. 38 years. They don't say, oh, amazing. What happened to you? This is a bona fide miracle of God. No, they say, the mat. You're carrying your mat. It weighs more than two dried figs. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. What is wrong with them? There are people like that today. I always think of this guy at this church a million years ago when there were dinosaurs here. We were at a church and... (laughs) They just put carpet in the new chapel where I was preaching and some guy just came in and gave his heart to the Lord and I'm just he's wiping the tears off of his face and he has a cup of coffee in the new chapel and this usher comes running, running like, like somebody just killed somebody. Like, oh my goodness. And he practically bowled the guy over. There's coffee in the new sanctuary. And, and I was like, this is John. He just became a Christian. (laughs) Oh my goodness, did it stop him? No. What was more important than John becoming a Christian was the rule about the carpet and the coffee. Oh my goodness. So Jesus said, not only do they just love piling it on, They have no intention on making your life easier and helping in any way. And then he contrasts their burden uh, bringing to his burden bearing. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened. 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you. Learn from me, because I'm not like them, proud and lifted up. I'm gentle and approachable and humble in heart, lowly, and you'll find rest. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. First John, love it. He says, this is love for God, that we keep his commands, and his commandments aren't burdensome. What are they? I mean, it's not a burden to love somebody. When you really love somebody, even the hardest thing you do for them is not a burden. Verses 4 through 7, everything, what an indictment. Oh my goodness, everything, their whole primary motivation is to be seen of men. Let's talk about that. So these guys are narcissists all the way. And they want other people to love them the way that they love themselves in this unhealthy, crazy, horrible way. And they thrive like a drug addict on the adoration of others. And so, yeah, everything they do, like turning on the air conditioner for the pastor, (laughs) they do it to be seen of men. Thank you. Yes, uh, yeah. this is what God thinks. God thinks that we're here to humbly serve him, to bring glory to God. Uh, but they do everything to bring glory to themselves, and they do it with great pride. They want to be held in high esteem so that others can see them, think well of them, speak well of them, and all of this. It's the very thing that Romans chapter 12 and verse 3 warns us against. It says, do not think of yourself more highly than you should, but with sober judgment. I always like to think, what am I? Who am I? Where would I be without the grace of God? Especially if you've got a gift, and you've all got a gift. The Bible says you all have a gift. And when God does that thing through you, the lines can get blurred. But not if you're cognizant of who you really are without the gift, without the grace, without the favor of God. And this is what we have to keep in mind, something that they would do. It's a slippery slope. Because I think, especially when God has given you a gift, you, you want to be affirmed. Uh, there's a natural, healthy thing about being recognized uh, if we're an accomplishment that's good and clean. And when it's in its right context, you uh, people want to feel value, valued and like you're making a difference, you know. But to, um, the reason I call it a slippery slope because it can start like that and then whoosh, boom, it's <laughs> one writer, a blogger who I follow, said his Christian life was almost ruined when something he did went viral. And he did a whole post on it. I'm going to try to find it because I loved it. He said he found himself living for checking social media and checking, counting the likes, the likes, the likes, the likes, and all of the thumbs up and all of this. And he said, it just poisoned me. And now I was thinking about how can I keep that up and how can I do more and where else can I go and maybe I should write a book and do a tour. And he was just like, wow. He goes, the worst thing that ever happened to me was it went viral. You see, 
Well, it's just tricky. There's a little bit of this, and then you say thank you and praise the Lord. You know, he gives us gifts, and I'm happy to use it for the glory of God and mean it in your heart without the devil getting in there and fanning it and making you feel like, well, nobody can do this like I can, and and nobody can do it like you. No one. You are the best at what you do, really, when you're like full on in that gift. Oh, my goodness. It's a slippery slope. I told first service on myself, I'm going to do it again. I was at Pete's. It's small here. It's small. And it was one of those days where everybody was from the rock. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> everybody. Everybody. And so it was, hey, Pastor Russ. Hey, Pastor Russ. Hey, Pastor Russ. Pastor Russ. You know, everywhere. I was fine with it. At first, it didn't even bother me. It was like, I love these people. I love what I get to do. God, thank you. I I can make a difference for you, God. I just was feeling good things until the guy next to me. Hey, Pastor Russ, hey, Pastor Russ. And then the guy goes, whoa. (laughs) And then I started going, yeah, well, you know. (laughs) We're a pretty thriving church and all of this stuff. And then I'm just like, feel the Holy Spirit's hands. Like, I could just take you out right now if I wanted to. <laughs> oh, how easy it is. I, I did uh, Something stayed with me 35 years now. And I always think of it when I, I, my head gets too big. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I was sharing the gospel. I was a young man, 22, at Bible college, zealous for God, and just using my gifts for him. And I was out there, and I was at at work at the dinner theater, and there was a bunch of guys all around. They were asking me hard questions, and the Lord was on me. And I was like, boom, 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 boom. And I was like amazed that the words were coming out of my mouth, things I didn't even know I was saying. They were like, whoa, 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 and it was wonderful. And then I'm like, yeah, any more questions? No, all right. So I walk off, and it was in a darkened theater. I've told you this before. And there's an overhang that's painted black. And I smashed my head into it and knocked myself out. (laughs) And I looked behind me as I got up, and they're all bent over laughing. And as I walked out of the theater... The Lord was so kind to say, remember this, you don't even know how to walk without me. (laughs) You can't walk through a door. And and Barb knows that I have continued to prove this to be the case. I'm not the most coordinated person in the room. Everyone knows that about me. You know what? And so God used it to teach me a lifelong lesson. So he says, look, Stop doing stuff to be seen. Now, the balance is, Jesus says, do your stuff to be seen. Shine your light in such a way that people will see and and give glory to God. Oh, that's the difference. So when you're doing something clean and right and good with the right motives to bring people to Christ, to give honor to Christ, that's good and right. We should do that. It's when we're doing stuff to stroke our own egos, to get them to praise us. 
instead of God. So he says three things at the Sermon on the Mount because he knows how we are. He says, hey, when you're giving, he says, don't blow the trumpet. Let everybody know how much you give like the hypocrites do. And here's what they did. They would bring a pile of shekels and they would blow the trumpet, blow a trumpet and announce, ladies and gentlemen, this Pharisee, John, is giving X amount of shekels. Oh, look at him. And Jesus says, guess what? Hope you like the clapping, because that's as far as your reward goes. You won't be getting anything in heaven, because you got your reward here. You got what you wanted. You got the praise. There it is. Hope you like it. So he says, but when you give, when you're writing a check, which nobody does anymore except one of my brother-in-laws, uh, he still writes checks. Uh, but if you uh, write a check, don't let this guy know what this guy's doing, which is kind of impossible. So that's the high hyperbolic point, is to make it so private that the one who sees in secret will reward you openly. I told first service about the guy who said uh, to a pastor friend of mine, they were button heads, as happens, and the congregant says, Pastor, I don't think you know how much I give to this church. And the pastor says, oh, no, I do know, because you're always telling everybody. (laughs) (laughs) I know full well. Jesus said, Oh, oh, no, don't do not do that. And what does the proverb say? Let someone else praise you. The lips of a stranger and not your own. That's a direct quote from the proverbs there. So, yeah, when we were at Bible college, I should say, young zealots for the Lord, uh, we would be moping around like, I hope somebody asks me why I'm not feeling good today. And so somebody would say, oh, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? I'm like, oh, I've been fasting. <laughs> and they go, oh, really? How long? Two weeks. Two weeks. I've been fasting for revival. And that God would make me more godly. <laughs> um, perhaps the prayer should have been more humble right? So one of these guys caught on that we were always doing that. Yeah, what did you do today? I led five people to the Lord while I was, or- while I was ordering it in and out. I was just sort of bored, so I just led some people to the Lord. So we were all doing stuff like that. So one of the guys started doing this when we would say something. He would go, we would say, yeah, I, I just prayed for four hours on my face before God. And then he'd go, whoosh, whoosh. I've told you this. Whoosh. And then we're like, whoosh, whoosh. Because that's the sound of your reward flying out the window. (laughs) (laughs) And so from then on, whenever we would say, you know, I just, you know, read 14 chapters of the Bible this morning, whoosh. There you go. That's the point. So these guys, they made their phylacteries broad. A phylactery, I got a picture of a nice Jewish boy. He looks way too happy to be at the wailing wall. But there he is. A phylactery called the Tefillin. 
as well. Uh, from the Greek old word, which means to keep the law. So in Deuteronomy 6, the Lord's figuratively speaking, let my word be like a sign on your forehead. So they took it literally and they put little tiny scrolls of that scripture and others like it in a little box and strapped it to their head and their hands. Right? But the hand part was like tie a string around your finger so you don't forget. Right? So they, they did it. Right? And the tassels was every, they took it out of Numbers 15 where it says that we should, uh, that the Jewish men should have tassels a blue string that reminds them of heaven and to do the work of the Lord and remember his word. So, start of the phylactery wars and the tassel competitions. Meaning, they made them bigger and bigger and bigger. Why? Oh, John, uh, we see that you're box is so big. Oh yes, it's because I love God's word so much. So much more than all of you with little boxes. I need to stuff every beautiful promise of God. Who wouldn't want to put them all in there? What, what's your problem? With your tiny little phylactery box on your forehead. Look at mine, how spiritual I am. And the tassels, is that even a tassel? What is that down there? I think you got some blue lint down there. And theirs would be the whole thing. They would go to seamstresses and they would pay the money to, to, to hook them up with tassels upon tassels to show, well, when I look down, <laughs> because I really love God. You guys. What's that down there? Nothing. Oh my goodness, you poor Fringe challenged person. <laughs> so yeah, that's what's going on there. Um, so and they he goes on to talk about greetings and places of honor, seats. So yeah, get this. There's nothing wrong with the seat of honor. It's not the position. It's the person's heart who's clamoring to get there so that they could get self-exalted and praised. Just terrible, you see. So, And it's not just the evil Pharisees who wanted to sit at the most important places in the room. Um, John and James struggled with this, didn't they? Mark 10 just outs them and their mother. Luke says, oh, by the way, the mother was leading or mom was behind, but all three of them were in cahoots. And here's what John and James said of the Lord. Teacher, rabbi, master, we want you to do whatever we ask. Oy vey, this is the not looking good. And, and so Jesus says, what is it that you want? At the second coming, one of us on your left and one of us on your right. Is that possible? Jesus, I don't know how he just doesn't evaporate people sometimes. <laughs> just like, you know, like, let me show you how I'm feeling right now. And he says, no, you don't know what you're talking about. And then he goes on to give us some precious insight, very helpful, he says. He says, can you die the same way I'm going to die? You see... The problem is they want the honor for the sake of the honor without any of the merit, without, if I lack of a better term, deserving the honor. 
So they just want the honor to stroke their ego. They want the gold medal, but they don't want to get up at 4.30 in the morning for four years in a row and do the hard work. But they want to be on that top box and get everybody's adulation without deserving it. So I don't think there's the actual problem of being on the top box if you keep your heart right. Spiritual ambition, we're supposed to have that run in, in, in a way to win the prize, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 9. It's hard. This is, I don't want to really work at it. I just want everybody to love me and think of me in these ways. And so Jesus said, look, go about life this way. When you enter a banquet and, and there were certain, it was shaped in a U usually or in a bunch of U's. And the ones in the middle of the connecting places were the places of honor and everybody, all the Pharisees wanted to be there because it, 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 the degrees of honor kind of went diminished as you went out the sides. So they didn't want to be out there. So Jesus says, look, a way of life. Live and just be humble and always take the lowest. And then God sees that. Maybe there's a change and somebody says, hey, friend, what are you doing way down there? Come on up here, right here. Oh, it's just Jesus says, you'll be honored. But what if you put yourself in a place that you don't deserve to be there and somebody more worthy happens to come in and then he says, oh, I need to do this in front of everyone. But would you mind getting up and moving so that somebody who really deserves to sit here can sit here? And then he says, you'll be humiliated. So Jesus gives good advice, doesn't he? And so, now this thing about rabbi, rabbi, and they love to be called rabbi. Well, I can honestly tell you that this is not a struggle for today's Protestant pastors in Northern California. It just not. It doesn't translate here uh, because this is what happens. I'm talking to somebody and I, what do you do? What do you do? And then I said, well, actually, I'm a pastor. And they go, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm like, yeah, I know nothing's wrong with it. Thanks. Thanks for that vote. Or they go like this. Uh, so what do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so there's no, there just doesn't work that way. Unless, of course, you're in some denominations, I guess you can really uh, do that with. But, yeah, let's finish up now because he's going to talk about the titles here. And I'm just going to tell you right from the jump, it's not about the title. It's about clamoring for a title and abusing the title and all of that. Okay. So he says, you're not to be called rabbi. You only have one master and all of you are brothers. Let's talk about this, the problem with self-glorification. All right. So don't call yourself rabbi. Well, let's figure out what is Jesus saying and what is Jesus not saying? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, don't imitate the Pharisees who go after these titles, demanding titles, seeking power and prestige, collecting the titles, and lording it over people. That's what I don't want you to do. He says, none of this Christian celebrity nonsense. 
it must be super hard. And we need to pray for names. If I said a name, everybody would know and adore how hard that must be to have lots and lots of money and to be very, very famous and love Jesus. Oh, I, I am glad that that's not, I, I have enough struggles of my own, you know, and uh, we need to pray for our brothers and sisters who God has blessed in those circles. Uh, yeah, so Jesus saying none of the, the celebrity kind of thing, uh, he says, because you're all brothers. It's, it's like the guy who said, good teacher. And Jesus says, whoa, whoa, stop. Why are you calling me good? There's only one who's good, God. Unless, of course, you're getting my claim. You see? So it's really, we're all on a, a pretty much equal playing field here. But titles are necessary. Titles are practical things that we need. And some of them have respect with them. And it's okay. Now, how is that? how do we know that? Well, the entire New Testament is filled with godly men who are using the, the titles about themselves and others. So let's take a look at them. I put it together a few a list for you. Paul, me, me an apostle. I, I'm, this is who I am. This is who God made me. He's certainly not clubbing people over the head with it. But as a distinction, as a calling, as a gift, evidenced by his character and effectiveness and fruitfulness, he's an apostle. Who's that guy? He's an apostle. He's the Apostle Paul. It's a title. We can use it. Next. Even if you had 10,000 guardians, Corinthians, you don't have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your spiritual father through the gospel. Who's Paul to you, sir? Paul's my spiritual father. Timothy would say the same thing. Paul is my spiritual father. And John, next slide. John will say, I'm writing to you, fathers. He's not writing to the dads. He's writing to the elders in the Christian community who were considered fathers. And who's that guy? Well, he's one of the founding fathers. And that was okay. Next slide. To the elders, the word can mean pastor as well, or overseer, or, um, yeah. To the elders, pastors among you, I appeal as a fellow elder pastor. I'm an elder, I'm talking to you. Are you talking to him? No, I'm not talking to him, I'm talking to the pastor. Oh, oh, I understand, do you see? And then he will say, elders are worthy of honor. So the title's not wrong. To give honor to whom honor is due is not wrong because it's a command. Romans 13 says to do that. To give respect to whom respect is owed. Another quote. Okay, so what is Jesus getting at? Don't go hunting. Don't go on the internet so that people think, oh, wow, you're a reverend? Yeah, for $39.99, I paid, you know, I slid the card, and, and now I'm in less than 15 minutes, I'm a reverend. And the word reverend, because they want to hang in the window and they want their friends to call them the reverend. He says, no, 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 don't do that. Don't follow their example. Hunt them down, collect them. Put your trophies on the, on the shelf for the purpose of abusing people. 
at inflating your own ego. That's the point. Then he, he closes up with that beautiful last, the greatest among you must be your slave. In verse 12, we wrap up uh, our time together with that thought. Now, Jesus' idea and heaven's idea of what constitutes greatness is vastly different from the world's. So uh, it's just the opposite. The world counts greatness by how many people honor and serve you, right? So it's not the chauffeur driving. It's the guy in the shades in the back seat being driven in the world's estimation of who's the important person that just drove by. Who's in the back being served? And heaven's all about. Who's in the front doing the dirty work? What kind of attitude does he have? Is he doing a good job? Because that's who heaven's eyes is on. I told first service that uh, we love the, the crown when it was out you know, a year ago. And we were watching, and I'm just blown away by the kind of honor that is afforded human beings. It's amazing. You know, just watching, they have people who dress them in these fabulous clothes. They just wake up, they pretty much do nothing but their jobs, right? But they don't have to worry about anything. The doors and everything's flying open for them and people are running around screaming, getting them their favorite drinks, their favorite food and their favorite clothes. And it's all there. They're being driven and all of that. I was picturing watching the crown with Jesus sitting next to me on the couch. And, and we would be talking, and I just imagine, you know, me saying, oh, look at all of those badges, and, those, uh, and look at, oh, do you know how much that crown costs, and oh, oh my goodness, and all of this glorious princely thing, and he's like, did you check out that butler? Did you, did you see how quick he was? Did you see how uh, selfless he was? And how he just had intuition and he knew exactly what the guy wanted. And there he was. Year after year after year, there he is. Always behind and serving hard. And Jesus like, wow. Yeah. And then Jesus would say something like this. But, you know, did you catch that older woman in the background, the cleaning lady? Oh, my God. Goodness, she's been doing that for years. You know, but I said, I would say, (laughs) the princess walked by, and did you see what she was wearing? And oh my goodness, and everybody applauding. And he says, Did you catch the old woman in the backdrop, cleaning and looking up and saying something encouraging and going straight back to scrubbing the floor? Wow. Jesus says. And we're like, well, how does this translate? Well, on the night he was betrayed, in 48 hours from those words, the disciples will, if you can believe it, Jesus says, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to die, they're going to pluck out my beard, they're going to spit in my face, they're going to crucify me. And one of you at the table is going to betray me. And it says, and then a fight broke out among them at the table at the Lord's Supper, which one of them 
is the greatest. What? The context is what blows my mind. And then Jesus brings it. He said, I noticed nobody got up and washed our feet because God made sure that the servant of the house was distracted. Normally, you clean those dirty feet before they're propped up on couches in everybody's faces. Oh, no, but everybody's got dirty feet there. Why? Because the one who would have said, oh, there's no servant here. Let me be the servant. Oh, would have admitted defeat. I guess I'm not the most important or I wouldn't be washing everybody's dirty feet. And Jesus says, wrong. That's where you're all wrong. Because I am God. He says, you call me Lord. And it's true. But God gets up, puts on an apron, goes finds a, a bucket and some wash water, some soapy water, and gets down on his knees and does the job nobody else wants to do. With a smile. Not going, I'm going to wash you. <laughs> you know, that's what we do. We're like, I'll do it. And you negate the whole thing. Why even do it? So he does it with a smile. And then he says something like this. He goes, I'm God. Service is not beneath me. In fact, I didn't come as God in a body to be served but to serve. Maybe you all think you came into the world. Everybody serve me, love me, and make me the center of your world. But nah, I didn't come that way. And whoever follows me in this example, I promise you, you will be blessed. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your love, your word that was like a arrow today that pierced all of our hearts, God, with truth and yet love and goodness. So God, help us identify the areas that need uh, attention to turn from that and to let you fix some things. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.